my name is Alex. I'm the associate pastor. I want to ask you a question. How many of you in the house are teachers or administrators or you work at a school? So could you raise your hand if you work in the education field? Yeah, give them a round of applause. They deserve it. I don't know if anybody's mentioned this to you, but the summer is over this week. I mean, like, you have to go back to work. So we want to pray for you. I mean that. This is a big deal. So let's start with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for those here who are called to the world of education, who love our kids and who serve their families and who have far fewer resources than they actually need and do far more work than anyone has a right to expect. So we pray that you would bless them this year with health and with protection and with wisdom, help them to tackle the challenges that are ahead, uh, help them to love the students well. And we pray that this would be a really great year. So many of the teachers that are here belong to you. And so we pray that you would use their quiet witness as evidence of your work in their lives and that you would use them to bless those families. As we turn our hearts to your word now, would you please speak to us? You know the things on our heart that we walked in with. You know the burdens we carry. You know our hopes, our dreams, our expectations. And we ask this morning that you would speak to us and we really need to hear you, God. And the power comes from your word, not from the speaker. So I pray that you would bring your word to life in our hearts today. We want you to be honored and glorified. So we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Right, we're going to read a passage of Scripture from 1 Peter chapter 3. I'm going to ask your help. So we're going to put this up on the screen. So whenever it's in the regular bold-faced print like that, you're going to read along with me. When it's italics and a little less noticeable, I'll just blow through that part. So I want us to hit highlights that are bold, and I want you to help me read it, and then I'll cover the other stuff. So we're going to try that together. Let's read this first part together. Finally, all of you be like-minded, be sympathetic, love one another, be compassionate and humble. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing, because to this you were called so that you may inherit a blessing." This is my part. It's my solo, okay? <laughs> For whoever would love life and see good days must keep their tongue from evil and their lips from deceitful speech. They must turn from evil and do good. They must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are attentive to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Who is going to harm you if you're eager to do good? But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear their threats. Do not be frightened. Okay, this is your part. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience, so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. For it is better, if it is God's will, to suffer for doing good than doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God, but made alive in the Spirit, 
And after being made alive, he went and made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits, to those who were disobedient long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. In it, only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water. And this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also. Not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a clear conscience toward God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand, with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him. All right, so a lot of verses, covers a lot of ground. I want to ask, how many of you remember Hurricane Katrina? About 15 years ago, it kind of wiped out the city of Louisiana. Even if you didn't live on the Gulf Coast, you knew about that. Even if you didn't live in the United States, you heard about it. But very few people, unless they lived in Texas, remember Rita, which was a storm that came along a month after Katrina. And it devastated southeast Texas. 4,500 homes destroyed, a third of the trees gone. And because the big storm had just come past. I lived in Texas for 17 years, so some of you, if you know anybody from Texas, there's kind of those like, yeah, I'm not worried about hurricanes. Uh, they come all the time. I'm good. We just, we'll ride the storm out, you know. It's, especially if you, people in Florida that do that without the same accent. But, you know, it's kind of ideas like, you know, we've been through storms before. It's no big deal. Well, about 24 hours before Rita hit, everybody in southeast Texas realized like, whoa, this is not a storm we can sit through. We need to get out of here. The path of the hurricane, the force of the hurricane, everything intensified, so people left. And this is what Interstate 35 looked like. All the lanes northbound, everybody, and that traffic was sitting still. I mean, it was terrifying for millions and millions of people trying to get out of the coastal regions. My brother-in-law and sister-in-law have lived in southeast Texas for a long time. They're a little older than I am. They had three adult sons, and their oldest was married, and his wife was eight and a half months pregnant. So they jump in the car, rush out to the highway, and sat for a very long time. Jill and I got on the phone, called friends in Dallas and East Texas, trying to find a place for them to stay. Eventually, they got to safety. Two weeks later, she gave birth to a healthy baby in a hospital with air conditioning and lights and all of that stuff. So happy ending to the story. But following that storm, my brother-in-law went out and bought this because, I, I mean it seriously, is like I am never again going to be limited to roadways. Or heck, I'm not even going to be limited to dry land. I am going, if we have to get out of here, we're throwing the pregnant lady in the back and we are getting on the road, okay? So I, I think for many of us, if you've been through a situation like that, the idea of being prepared, that resonates with us. And this passage that Peter is uh, written for us this morning is all about being prepared. Up until this point, he's had lots of uh, general things that he's covered, and we're doing a series called Endure this summer, looking at the book of 1 Peter. How do you endure when your faith is under pressure? But now, now he's really zeroing in on what it means when the heat is on and you're facing hardship. So this morning, we want to talk about when hardship comes. I, I think certainly for Peter, he was thinking about people like us who may experience challenges in our marriage or family, or we may have struggles with parenting or with aging parents. We have struggles with our finances or our careers or there's spiritual challenges or physical and emotional health issues. But also, Peter was quite aware that people that were reading this letter were facing or would soon face 
persecution that would ultimately lead to their deaths. That's not that unusual in our world today. It's unusual in America, but just last month in Mali, a country in West Africa, 95 Christians were killed in a single attack on a village. Just one day, one village, 95 Christians killed. And I would encourage you to Google Voice of the Martyrs. It's a really good source to give you information about the persecution that much of the church universal in the world today is experiencing. We're relatively sheltered. And so Peter writes to people like us who are facing a wide variety of hardships. And he gives us advice about how to be prepared for the hardship that is surely headed our way. And he starts by saying, first of all, take care of each other. Take care of each other. Finally, all of you, y'all, if you're from Texas, you know, I want all of you guys who are following Christ, be aware of this. You need to do this. And he's going to give us five adjectives that should characterize our care for other Christ followers if we want to be ready when hardship comes. And we need to practice these all the time so we'll be ready when the situation becomes critical. So especially when trials come, these five things will position us to bless and encourage each other. Elsewhere in the scripture, there are dozens of one another's. And by one another's, there are the verses that talk about love one another, serve one another, encourage one another, forgive one another. And here, Pete has kind of distilled down quite a few of these kind of teachings, and he put them into five simple phrases that help us understand how we're supposed to take care of each other. So first of all, he says, be like-minded, be harmonious, be of one mind, like you're on the same team when it comes to Jesus. Now, clearly there are differences between us, but whatever differences they may, they don't matter when it comes to serving Jesus. So we make a conscious decision not to be unified around politics or economics or education or race, or ethnicity, or the non-essentials of the faith. Absolutely. Are there differences in the way that Christians view baptism? Heck yeah. Are there differences of opinions about what happens at the end of time based on Scripture? Absolutely. But for these non-essential doctrines of faith, we put aside the differences, and we say we are unified in our pursuit of the Lord Jesus and the service of His kingdom. Here's how Paul puts it over in Romans 15. He says, may the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you the same attitude of mind toward each other that Christ Jesus had, so that with one mind and one voice, you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Accept one another then, just as Christ accepted you, in order to bring praise to God. So we choose to look for common ground. We show lots of grace. We appreciate the differences, and we encourage one another in the essentials of the Faith, being like-minded in the way that we serve the kingdom of God. Number two, he says, be sympathetic. He's talking about a mutual commiseration, especially in difficult situations, being willing to share in each other's hurts and needs. And his point is that since we're connected to each other through Christ, we have a duty, a responsibility to understand and appreciate each other. So we celebrate with each other and we cry with each other. 1 Corinthians 12, 26 addresses this idea of being sympathetic and supportive of each other, and it, it refers to the body of Christ, you know, the church, the people of God as the body of Christ, and it says, look, if one part suffers, every part suffers with it. 
If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. So we need to be sympathetic. Third, he says, love one another. Some translations say, love as brothers and sisters. Love the person sitting next to you as if they were a part of your actual family. Don't take advantage of them or mistreat them or think poorly of someone in your church family because they are a chosen son or daughter of the Lord God. One day Jesus was teaching and someone came up to him and said, hey Jesus, your mother and brother, they're outside and they want to talk to you. And Jesus responded to them by saying, my true brothers and sisters, my mother, my real family, those are the people who pursue my Father in heaven. Our bond through the Lord Jesus is even stronger than our family of origin. Now, if you grew up with a sibling, you probably heard your parents say something like this. You don't have to like her. She's your sister. <laughs> you have to love her, but you don't have to like her. You know? And you are going to sit at the same table for dinner if you want food. So just zip it, buddy. You know, that kind of thing. And I hate to scare you, but those of us who follow Jesus are going to be sharing a big house for a very long time in heaven with the people that we're sitting next to right now. So we need to get really good at loving each other in spite of whatever comes up. Next, Peter says, all of you, I want you to be compassionate. The, the phrase actually means be well-compassioned. In other words, tender-hearted, sensitive, tolerant, conscious of the needs of others, and not just kind of feeling good thoughts for them, but doing something to help them to relieve their suffering. So being deeply touched by their joys and hurts and putting that feeling into action. And then lastly, Peter says, be humble, be humble. And when he talks about humility here, I think Philippians 2 captures it really well. Philippians 2 verse 3 says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interest, but each of you to the interest of the others. In other words, don't just worry about what's going on in your life, good or bad. You need to look out for your brothers and sisters. Include them. Defer to them, serve them, make room for them at the table. So maybe before you come to church or before you leave for your group meeting, you pray and you say, hey God, if there's somebody you want me to serve or someone just that needs a listening ear this morning, would you tap me on the heart? Or I want to be useful to you, Lord. I want you to be the most important person in the room. So help me know how I can be useful to you. At times, being humble will be inconvenient. It may be costly, but fortunately for us, Jesus himself set the example by humbling himself and serving us in a very costly way. And he challenges us to follow in his footsteps. You may not be aware of it, but we have a number of people at Gateway that struggle with hardship over a long season of time. So Certainly all of us at times, you know, maybe experience dry seasons or something like that. But these are people that have chronic or long-term issues that really are quite wearing on them. And so I ask a number of them, would you give me some input on the sermon this week? And what surprised me most was how similar their responses were in spite of the fact that they experience a wide range of hardship. All of them said when you're in the middle of hardship, you feel isolated and alone. Sometimes it can be accompanied by depression or anxiety, but there's almost always a sense that other people don't understand what you're going through, and even if you explained it, they would not get it. So it's very isolating. And then I said, well, what's not helpful? You know, it may be well-intentioned, but what doesn't help? And they said, 
again, very similar things. First of all, don't say, let me know if you need something, because then that puts the burden on them, and they feel like they're troubling you to call and ask. So instead, offer something specific. Say, hey, can I drop a meal off sometime this week? Or can I come over and clean your bathrooms? Isn't that a cool idea? I mean, like, I would love if anybody just mentioned that. So offer something specific. Number two, it's not helpful for you to explain God or how he works or what he's up to, especially if you're using greeting card theology. That just is not helpful to say like, oh, God's not going to give you anything you can't handle. Really? Because I can't get out of bed in the morning. That kind of little simple saying is not going to change things for somebody like that. So we need to be careful about trying to explain God. Another thing is telling them about a friend who experienced something similar, but actually that's a completely different thing. You know, that's not helpful, and it makes them feel like maybe you're not listening to what they're saying, or that you're more interested in telling them about somebody you know than hearing what's going on with them. Another thing that's not helpful is trying to fix them whether it's recommending essential oils or your favorite vitamins or, you know, an article you read, it's, you know, they want to be fixed and it's probably not a lack of information. That's probably not their biggest need. So what does help? They said things like regular communication, you know, call or text or send a note or a card from time to time. Consistency shows concern. I thought that was really good advice. Listening is always better than trying to fix things. And by that, they mean an active listening, really engaging. Another thing is to be present for them, to be there for them. It usually means a short visit, but sometimes just hanging out with no agenda. Maybe they don't feel like talking, so you're willing just to sit and watch a lame talk show, but you're with them and they're not alone. Another thing is grace and patience. Because hardship impacts everyone differently, and they may seem angry or grouchy to you, and that's exactly the appropriate emotion for them to be feeling, given what they're going through. So you don't take it personally. You just let the grace of Christ cover it. Pray for them. Pray with them. Encourage them. Send an encouraging verse or write out your prayer for them. And then they also mentioned it's important to support the primary caregivers, so their spouses or their families, because those people struggle under the load as well. One of them said, when I had my cancer, a woman at our church would send me a card every week. I never met her face to face, but this was so meaningful. You don't even have to know the person, but your expression of care and concern could make an enormous difference in their life. So, we want to be really good at taking care of one another. Now, having told his readers how to take care of each other, Peter moves on in this next section to tell them how to relate to the people around them, the people who don't know God, who relate to us across a wide range of perspectives from, you know, like they just are puzzled why we get up and go to church every Sunday morning. Like, I don't know, I guess they're really in a church. And then at the opposite extreme, people who do not like us because of our faith people who might persecute us because of our faith. Some of you who are here this morning, you may consider yourself a spiritual outsider. You know, not sure where you stand with God, not sure how much of this stuff you believe. This is actually helpful to you because it'll give you an idea of what God expects from those of us who are in the church in the way that we treat the people outside of the church. This wide range of hardship, it runs the gamut from maybe a friend or a coworker who just doesn't get why we are all into Jesus. It could be high school classmates who make fun of our students because they don't drink or 
cheat on tests or sleep around like everybody else does. It could be a coworker who thinks we're judging them when we don't laugh at a dirty joke or when we don't jump in on the conversation where everybody else is trash-talking the boss. But for some of Peter's readers and for some people in the world today who follow Christ, Peter is talking about people who lost out on business deals because other people steered clear of them because they were known to be Christians. Or government officials or community leaders who mistreated them because they were followers of Jesus. People who experienced harassment or slander, accusations, fines, imprisonment. And for that whole range of difficulty and hardship, to anybody who's in the middle of that, here's Peter's instruction. And basically it boils down to, Bless those around you. Bless those around you, especially those who are hostile to you, people who are in opposition to you. So he's changing directions, and over the next eight verses, he's going to give us some wise counsel on how do we relate to the people outside of us. He starts off by saying, repay evil with blessing. Evil doesn't have to be big capital letter evil, you know, Mr. Evil. It could be like just somebody being unkind or rude or harsh or negative or hurtful or inconsiderate, but instead of responding in kind, he tells us we should repay them with blessing, with kindness, with unexpected grace. We don't worry about getting even. We want the transaction to end up being a net positive for them. We want them to walk away from it being blessed. And Jesus taught us to turn the other cheek, to love our enemies, and to bless those who curse us. And Peter says, look, if you're called to follow in Jesus' footsteps, then you were called to be a blessing. That's your job, to be a blessing. He blesses you so that you can be a blessing to other people. And if you grasp this and put it into practice, you will inherit a blessing. And then Peter quotes Psalm 34, verse 12 through 16 in this passage to reinforce this idea. So he's, he's quoting the Old Testament. And he basically says, if you want to experience a rich, abundant life that Jesus talked about, then keep away from evil words and deceitful speech, pursue peace, and do everything you can to keep healthy relationships and honor your commitments and act with integrity. And you do all that you can so that when you are persecuted, when life becomes difficult or hardship is facing you, your goal is to bless the people around you. Another way we bless the people around us who may not understand or appreciate our faith is to eagerly do good. Not with reluctance or begrudgingly, but with energy and urgency. Now, in just the last chapter, Peter said, I want you to live such good lives among your neighbors who don't know Jesus that they see your good behavior and they connect it to God and they end up glorifying God because of the way that you're living. So do good because it reflects positively on the Lord. And then a third way that we should relate to the people around us is don't be afraid. Instead, revere Christ. So don't carve out room in your heart where, where your highest allegiances are for fear because of what somebody has said they're going to do or because threats that have been made. Instead, carve out that space for reverencing Christ, for giving Him your highest and best, being loyal no matter what. And if we do that, then we are following Christ and we're letting our allegiance to Him kind of filter into our other relationships. So don't be afraid. Instead, revere Christ, reverence Him. And then a fourth way to bless the people around us, this is a really important way in verse 15, is always be prepared to give an answer for your hope. 
Again, we come back to this idea of being prepared, of, of not just waiting till you're in the moment, but doing some work ahead of time. Spending regular time in prayer and in God's word, asking God for boldness, for the right words, for opportunities. The language that Peter uses in this passage suggests that he's thinking about a formal legal defense in court. But he also had in mind the day-to-day questions that might come up from friends and neighbors or maybe family members who just don't get about our relationship with Christ. And his point is that if we're living a God-honoring life, then people will look at us and they'll have an opportunity to see the living hope inside of us and the difference that Jesus makes. And when they ask about it, we need to be ready to answer them. We need to be ready to explain, and not with arrogant words or with grandiose Christianese terminology, but with gentleness and tact and authenticity, with a respect for them, with a willingness to hear their perspective, to consider their point of view. We need to keep a clear conscience before God, allowing the Holy Spirit to remind us when we get off track. And ultimately, those who are critical of us, harsh to us, or attacking us for doing good, they will be ashamed for thinking poorly of us. This idea of blessing others. Great illustration of this was a movie uh, that my wife and I saw about two months ago called Emmanuel. And it was only in theaters for very limited screenings for small groups. I think it's on the way to being released on video, but it's about the Emmanuel AME Church in South Carolina where Dylan Roof went in and shot up a prayer meeting one night. And what is so amazing about this movie is they use actual footage And you see the victims of this horrible shooting saying, with the judge's permission to the man who caused them all this misery, I forgive you. I want you to know Jesus because otherwise you have no hope. And that kind of forgiveness, that kind of desire to bless other people, that's exactly what we're supposed to be aiming for. This movie is crazy because it was produced by Steph Curry, Viola Davis, Mariska Hargitay, I mean, it's not a a Christian movie. It's a documentary. Because these people looked at the situation and they were like, that does not make sense. How could people let something that evil happen to them and yet they turn around and want to bless the person who caused them so much pain? So Peter says, look, I want you to take good care of each other and I want you to be a blessing to the people around you. Finally, he wraps up by saying, be encouraged, okay? Especially... Those of you that are in the middle of hardship right now, be encouraged. If you're facing something that is just overwhelming to you, there is some amazing encouragement when you look at the example of Jesus Christ himself. So he says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. And then a few verses later, Peter adds that Jesus has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him. So he's saying Jesus was the prime example of someone who is innocent of all wrongdoing. Somebody who suffered for doing what was right, for obeying God. And he died, but that was not the end of the story. In fact, he rose from the dead, and right now he is exalted, sitting in heaven, seated at the right hand of God in authority over all things. And when hardship comes to us, we can know that we have a Savior who is not unaware of the struggles that we face. He knows what suffering feels like. And yet, suffering was not the end of the story for him. He is sitting in heaven with all authority so we can trust him for the outcome of our struggle. 
That's important we dig in just a little bit more because Jesus is not just a good man who suffered for righteousness' sake. He is the sinless Son of God. Of all the people who have ever walked the earth, He is the one least deserving of suffering. And yet, willingly, He suffered and died for all of us. Once and for all, His sacrifice was sufficient. There is no need for any other sacrifice ever. Peter says, Jesus, the righteous... And in this passage, righteous is singular. The righteous died for the unrighteous. Unrighteous is plural because it refers to us. This is the way Paul explains it in Romans 5. At just the right time when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Christ, the righteous, for the ungodly, the unrighteous. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person. Though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Now, Peter knew because he had seen it with his own eyes. Christ was physically dead. But he says, Jesus was made alive in the spirit. And Peter tells us now that Christ dwells in the eternal realm at the right hand of God until he comes back and redeems his people. Philippians 2, along about verse 8 through 11 says... Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth. You get his dominion, every range of existence, heaven, earth, and below. And every tongue will acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, some of you who were paying attention a few minutes ago realized that, hey, he skipped over that weird part about Noah and the ark and Jesus preaching to spirits in prison, and what was that all about? Uh, Hang on a second. So there are lots of scholars who have studied this over the last several thousand years, and they have come up with all kinds of different opinions, and the reality is we just don't know with certainty what Peter is talking about. They're not parallel passage in other parts of Scripture that we can look at and, and kind of compare and go, oh, oh, that's what he means. But there are some clues, and I'll try to give you a little bit of a, a basic explanation, acknowledging that this may not be absolutely correct, but I want you to at least get the general flow of things. So in this section, Peter says that at some point after Jesus died, he was made alive in the Spirit, and then he went to heaven. So we know that. Jesus came back in a resurrection body, and he was around. His body could do different things after the resurrection, and now, after he ascended into heaven, he doesn't even need the resurrection body. He's can be all kinds of places. He's sitting in the heavenly realms. He has none of the limitations that he used to have. The Bible doesn't tell us specifically when or where Jesus went to proclaim to these imprisoned spirits. It doesn't tell us who they are, but it seems quite possible that these are fallen angels that are referenced in Jude verse 6 or 2 Peter chapter 2. And if so, these fallen angels were active around the time of Noah. Now keep in mind that for Peter... The time of Noah and the flood, that would have represented the high water mark. Did you get that? The high water mark, the flood. It's a little joke there. That was the extreme of human rebellion and disobedience to God. Things were so bad that God sent a flood to destroy the earth. Now, God patiently waited for 120 years while Noah preached repentance to the people. And he told them, look, if you'll turn and get back on track with God, you can be spared. But only eight people, Noah and his family, 
got on that boat and God sent the flood. Peter says, look, that flood is the vehicle that saved them. It was God's instrument of judgment, but it saved them. They were saved through the water. And that kind of reminds us of the water of baptism. It's a parallel here. In the same way, God is patiently waiting for people around us who don't know him. And he's provided a way of salvation. And it's through the water of baptism. He clarifies, it's, it has nothing to do with the outside. It's not the water. At best, all that could do is just get the dirt off of you. It's about what it represents. And it's the down payment on your eternal salvation. So baptism is the external sign that lets people know there's been this internal change because we've decided to follow Jesus. And so Peter is saying, look, just as God was patiently waiting back in those days, he's patiently waiting now. And he's provided a way of escape for anyone who would turn to him. And so I think the idea about Jesus proclaiming to these spirits in prison is Jesus, once he becomes spiritually alive, he goes to these spirits wherever they are and he says to them, you know, you guys worked so hard in the days of Noah to thwart my father's plans and to undermine the advance of his kingdom on earth and you thought you won. And then I marched to the cross and was crucified and died and you thought you won. But I'm here to tell you, I just defeated death and sin and the grave and now I am headed to heaven where all authority is mine. And then... In my vision, Jesus drops the mic and walks away. <laughs> I mean, pretty cool, huh? Now, we don't know all of the details about these verses, but we can be certain that Christ was righteous and suffered unjustly because he was vindicated, and he rose from the dead. Likewise, we know that we may suffer, but God will one day make things right. Evil will be punished, and righteousness will be rewarded. We know with certainty that Christ died an excruciating physical death, but was resurrected and made alive again. And now he sits at the right hand of the Father, ruling over heaven and earth. And we know with certainty that after he was made alive again, Christ proclaimed his victory over sin and death, and he deserved to proclaim that victory. And now that responsibility to proclaim his victory rests with those of us who walk in his footsteps. Do you remember what he told his followers before he ascended into heaven? He says, all authority in heaven and on earth, get that? All authority from here to there belongs to me. And so, therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing and teaching. And remember this, I am with you no matter what happens. Man, that ought to encourage us. My dad had his first stroke when I was about 25 or so. He was about my age, the age that I am now. And it was a massive stroke. For days, we didn't know if he was going to be able to move his fingers or, or talk. He could blink, but that was the only way we could communicate with him. And then for weeks, we didn't know if he was going to be able to, you know, sit up or walk or anything like that. For months, he fought and did physical therapy, and somewhere around 12 to 15 months into it, he was able to walk, and ultimately, I would say he probably regained about 60 or 65% of his physical function, and probably 95% of his cognitive function. But then he had many other strokes over the next 30 years, and little by little, kind of chipping away at his physical abilities, his emotional capacity, his mental abilities, and it was sad. It was, I, I can't imagine what that would be like. 
But as his son, as a young man starting my own family, I can't tell you how appreciative I was for the example that he set because I never heard him blame God. He never said, why did this happen to me? And if anything, it fueled his faith over the next 30 years. And it made him be innovative and creative because he wanted to figure out how to do stuff for himself. And I don't want your help. You know, I'm going to figure out how to button my shirt, you know, with two fingers that work. So he was just incredibly driven, and I appreciate that. I think it's all too easy for us to think about when we're facing a struggle. I just want to get the struggle over with. I want the hardship to be done and things to go back to normal. We don't think about the impact we could be having on the people around us the example we could be setting for our own children. This is just my personal opinion, but I think our children and our grandchildren are going to have a much harder time living out their faith than we do today. And we need to offer them the strongest example. We need to show them a very clear picture of what it looks like to trust God no matter what the circumstances. We live in a fallen world, and hardship and suffering is part of the human experience. It is coming. Most of us are not experiencing that right now. Man, be grateful. But for Gateway as a church family, we need to get better at entering into the hardship that others in our midst are experiencing. Feels like God is calling us to be more engaged in the suffering and the injustice that is going on in our church and in the world around us. We need to look for it and ask God to help us find tangible ways to lighten the loads for other people. Certainly, we need to pray for those enduring hardship. One of the people you know, that I'd ask for feedback, one of the people in the middle of hardship, gave me this quote. It's for you. They said, this is where I would challenge the church as a whole. Take a risk. Carve out time. Enter into someone's life, not to fix them or their situation, but to be a support emotionally and spiritually. Really encourage them, because this is a very hard journey. Blessings will show up when we connect. I really think God is calling us in this room to be engaged in the suffering and hardship that impacts the family of God. And not just here, but in other parts of the world. So I want you to bow your heads, and we're going to take a couple of minutes, and I want you to ask God, is there something that he wants you to do today? Is there something he's going to put on your heart? Or maybe you need to go to him and ask him for something. So let's just take a few moments in silence and I'll close. Father, thank you so much that your eyes are on us and your ears are attuned to our prayers. I pray that for those that are in the middle of hardship right now, you would give them strength and you would put people in their lives who would help lighten their load. For those of us that are not struggling right now, would you draw us into the fellowship of suffering that Paul talks about? Help us to be engaged and connected, loving and serving. For our church, I pray that you would help us to be the kind of place where people know there is help and hope because of you. I pray that the conversation that was started in our hearts this morning with you would continue this week. Tap us on the heart, press into us, Holy Spirit. Help us to know how we can better love and serve you and the people around us. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.
So uh, let's stand together and pray for this group from Guatemala, and we'll send you out. Father, thank you so much for bringing us here this morning. We are not here by accident. And you have reminded us this morning what it looks like as we relate to one another, enduring. And what it looks like as we relate to those outside of our connection with you, enduring. And you've told us to be encouraged because of the example of Jesus. And we are. We think of our Savior and his sacrifice. We also think of our Lord and Alex's mic drop. Uh, Lord, remind us of that this week. We pray uh, specifically for the Guatemala team that you would minister your love through them and that you would keep them safe, that this would be a time of connecting for them and pray for their health. And Lord, we pray for us this week that whatever you've whispered to us this morning, you would remind us on Tuesday and again on Friday that we would walk more deeply and more consistently with you. In the strong name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray, and all God's people said, amen. Now, you know everybody's name. They've got a name tag. So speak to at least three people, not more than five before you leave. Go in peace.